This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com. Call to Adventure, hosted by Alexopoulos and John Duckworth, an exploratory conversation about facing the unknown, an opportunity to discuss those pivotal moments that illuminate new paths and reveal deeper purpose and meaning in our lives. So here we are, Alexopoulos, John Duckworth, back high above Charleston in the penthouse studio of the Joseph Floyd Manor, Ohm Radio headquarters. And we have us with us here today, Karen Ann Myers. Uh, Karen is an artist, educator, and curator. She received an MFA in painting from Boston University and a BFA in studio art from Michigan State University. She's an adjunct professor at the College of Charleston and is an incredibly talented and accomplished painter and currently represented locally by Robert Lang Studios here in Charleston, South Carolina, and has also exhibited extensively throughout the country and abroad. Karen was recently named by Oxford American one of the 100 Under 100, the new superstars of Southern art, and was invited in 2015 to the South Carolina Biennial. Welcome to Call to Adventure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, So as we do with everybody, we send out a list of questions and, and if you have the time, you can reply to any or none. Um, and your answers were, were many and some hilarious, <laughs> which I loved. Um, one of the ones that I wanted to start off with was, what did you used to fear and no longer do? And your answer was, which we'll have to edit slightly on the, on the final show, I used to fear not fitting in, now I just don't give a f- it's true it's true i love it yeah what was the shift you know i guess i've i feel like i've always been a little bit of an outsider in a sense that the things that have always been important to me never really aligned with everyone else and just you know growing up in any you know for all of us k through 12 is a horrific time where you feel like it's important to fit into the crowd based on what you wear and what you like how you spend your like what extracurricular activities and I quickly realized that I just didn't really fit in and what I wanted to do standard clicks yeah in any of the standard clicks and it ended up being kind of okay uh in the end because I I was involved in all kinds of different things, so I never was, I never really felt 100% included in my high school, but I was on a traveling gymnastics team and participated with all kinds of other high schools. And so I was never a part of a clique, but at the same time, a part of many cliques. So it really allowed me to express myself in the ways that were important to me. And I also didn't have... Uh, what would you call that like dragon parents who are like this oh, is yeah. what you need to do and this is how you should dress like they didn't really give a f- it's interesting because John and I share conversations about our children I have two uh, Max who's 10 and my daughter Maya who's 8 and we were in having a conversation recently and I was just noticing that a- around other friends he would try to be funnier or try to do this or try to do that and 
and I was having a conversation with him in, in the you know car on the way somewhere. I said, you know, I get the pleasure of seeing just purely Max, not who Max is projecting to be. Yeah, and just be yourself. It's it's good enough, you know. And I I think uh, I mean I, I didn't have that, but I, it's it's a powerful thing when you just feel comfortable in your own skin. And, yeah, and don't have to try to project something to be comfortable around others. I would also thank my parents for that. Yeah. They they really didn't give a f- and they still really, <laughs> really? don't give a f- about what they look like and you know who they socialize with and they're you know they're not social climbers. They they're just doing their own thing and it was weird growing up because if i went over to a friend's house the priorities for you know everything being in its right place and having the right furniture and like if we had a meal it had to look just a certain way and it was a strange world it was a strange world to me but did you not bring friends over then for that reason you're like man this is gonna be this is not what you expect at home it well, again, when you grow up, you don't realize that your environment yeah. is not the standard. So it wasn't until maybe high school when I would invite friends over and a lot of people declined invitations to come <laughs> over to my house because it was an unusual place for okay. them. But and then I think later in life, I realized how bizarre my my childhood really was. Yeah, yeah, one of the questions we ask is, what is one lesson that sticks with you from your parents, which you've carried forward, and what's a lesson that you've chosen to let go of? And you talked about, you said, my parents live a very frugal, well below their means, off-the-grid lifestyle. They grow their own food, hunt, fish, live in a home they built, powered by solar, buy nothing but essentials, and make do everything themselves. I mean, from an outsider, that sounds like what the movie Captain Fantastic I think with Viggo Mortensen I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen it but it's a it's a beautiful insight into an off the grid way of life mm-hmm. you know? um, I'm sure there were parts of that that were beautiful but you also rebelled against some of those things can you talk a little bit about both oh yeah there was lots of rebellion not, right. <laughs> I mean not because I again like it was the normal it was like that was my normal childhood so I didn't really realize how strange it was really probably until high school so a lot of the rebellion came when I was trying to fit in and like demanding that my parents take me to like Abercrombie and Finch and buy me clothes and they're like okay. absolutely not Wait, it's interesting though the the when we talked about that Alex and I were talking about this before the show that it sounds like this real kind of beautiful romantic you know back to sort of the essentials lifestyle and yet you follow that up with uh, my parents have not traveled they have not vacationed there is no leisure or entertainment and they in my opinion they have not lived I, I do feel that way and it's an interesting takeaway like I didn't see that one coming like at the front end of your description I was like that sounds really interesting right. that sounds like something some of the things that I'm curious about you know off the grid living and a more sustainable lifestyle and making things myself and this and that and then and then, you know, comes a few sentences later that, uh, um, in your opinion, they hadn't really, truly lived. Is that because of the, the sort of um, the well-below-their-means lifestyle, just staying within this sort of enclosed environment, this sort of uh, insular? 
Yeah, I think that they, you know, they are baby boomers who live or work towards retirement. And so all that they did was work, 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 work. And then towards this future, towards this future where they can finally live. But I think what you find so often is if you haven't ever vacationed or if you really haven't enjoyed any leisure activities for the first 60 something years of your life, which is crazy. (laughs) Then when you actually enter into retirement, you don't know what to do. do And you, I mean, I wouldn't, my parents had, were different, definitely passionate people, but their passions were towards work. Um, which I think I have adopted a little bit in the sense that I just kind of work all the time too, but I would I would argue that <laughs> the difference is how I spend my time working, I actually take pleasure in, okay. and what they decided to spend their time working on was not pleasurable in any capacity. It was a means to an end, and the end coming much later. Correct, okay. and they're at, yeah. they're currently in retirement, okay. and they're they're not really doing anything because <laughs> <laughs> they don't really know what to do. <laughs> Another one of the questions you uh, mentioned the book Sex at Dawn by Cecilda. Jetha, I believe, is maybe how you pronounce it, and Christopher Ryan. He said, made me think about human existence in ways that never occurred to me and has had a profound, long-lasting impact. Tell us about that book. So the book is written by um, some evolutionary biologists who study kind of how we came to organize as a family unit and this idea Mm. of moving out towards the suburbs and really... like an isolated family unit away from community driven experiences where, Mm. you know, the idea that it takes a village to, to raise a person. And we don't really, that's not our way of life in 2017. And it hasn't been our way of life for some time. So they track the, so it's partially tracking the actual like industrial revolution and agricultural revolutions. Um, So like, organized modes of living but then it also traces innately based on our biological makeups what like how we really should live so it places a high emphasis on like hunter gathering Mm. cultures and then what i took away a lot from it is this idea of monogamy and the the family unit came from the agricultural movement so you would move with your small family unit to a farm in isolation but that's not really what uh is natural to us um so the book is not trying to perpetuate or change people to have a maybe a polygamous lifestyle but it does talk about the idea that maybe we're not meant like our needs like our our singular needs as humans can't maybe possibly can't be met just by one husband or one wife and your children that we as human beings it requires a multitude of human relationships to fulfill a person person's needs whether it be sexual needs physical needs emotional needs and i mean it goes into i'm you know i'm just really paraphrasing here yeah. but it's it's a fascinating read yeah well i mean whenever you question such like such strong cultural norms like the nuclear family unit and you know you trace back its history towards the agricultural revolution then you think about today the digital revolution 
and the fact that there's so many things that are shifting underneath our feet that we can't even keep pace with. Yeah. It's interesting to think about, you know, if you have a long view, hundreds of years out, what that looks like, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the book, like, there's a, f- a few examples in the book of, you know, our divorce rate is so high and husbands and wives are having affairs with all kinds of other people. Like, that's not an unusual happening. But then what, what a lot of times the aftermath of that is divorce and um, the, 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 the complete breakdown of the nuclear family. And the book is suggesting that maybe it's okay if you know, mom or dad has other partners, but that family unit doesn't need to break down. That can still be maintained because perhaps it's like your husband can't fulfill every single one of your needs. Well, interestingly, I think that's one of the big challenges. I was listening to an interview recently with Alain de Botton, who was talking about, uh, this very thing where he said, there's the expectations we set for our partners are to, way too high you know it, it unreasonable un- I mean completely like, unreasonable like almost like insane impossible yeah yeah and his and so then everybody's disappointed of course yeah and really all we're trying to do uh, his point is 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 and it's whether it's a, a romantic relationship or just a friend relationship is helping each other understand each other and that's enough and and his point was was that maybe the the, the best first date question should be this is how I'm crazy. How are you crazy? <laughs> and I was like, that's pretty good. Like, right. yeah, I, I like- know, I did just hear about a dating app recently. I can't remember the name of it, but it was rather than listing all of your like positive attributes, you would list everything that was negative about okay. you and yeah. find a partner based on <laughs> all of your weaknesses rather than your strengths. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man! All right. Well, we're gonna we're we gotta swing this back on topic a little bit. But you don't want to keep talking about sex. We can we can go there. Hey, that's fine. But we will talk about. I'll give one quick example. So I would say there there was a point in my life where I was, and it was coincidentally right after reading this book, where it was uh, maybe a year after the loss of my longtime partner, and I had this trifecta of men going, which was like the three of them like kind of created like a whole person like one of them was fulfilling like intellectual needs like my need for intellectual stimulation and great conversation and debate and you know philosophical talks and the other one was filling more like physical needs and then the other one was filling more like emotional needs and I'm not so sure that there's a person in the world that could do all of all that, those. all of those things. And that's why, you know, that's why it's so important to be a part of a community and have friends. But, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, there's these weird boundaries with um, that our society has established that maybe prevent any any one of us from being 100 percent fulfilled and maybe reaching our full capacity as humans, which is kind of what the book um, mm. talk, touches upon among many, many other things that aren't so like um, taboo, perhaps. Interesting. Sex at dawn. I think that's going on my nightstand. There you go. All right. <laughs> well, speaking of passion, which is what we were getting into just before this, and we can, you know, parlay it right into sex, of course. But uh, um, the, for your first call to adventure was about a passion, was about the fact that you didn't think your folks were living their passion and that you were doing this thing that inevitably became what you would d- described as soul-crushing 
on a pre-med pharmacy degree at Michigan, right? Mm-hmm. And Michigan State? Yes. Yeah. And, um, and you decided in your junior year to, to, to get out. You're like, this isn't working. This is soul-crushing. I really need to pursue my artwork. And the reason for doing the pharmacy thing wasn't necessarily... It was to support being an artist. Correct. So that was the underlying intention from the start. And then you finally just couldn't take it and said, I got I to gotta, I gotta do this full time. Yeah. And, what, and interestingly, you said that your parents, your father said, if garbage collecting is what you want to do, be a garbage collector. So you were completely supported in doing whatever you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But the leap for you was terrifying. Yeah. I mean, again, like I'm growing up in this environment where my parents are completely supporting themselves and we're living fairly comfortably and I'm very well aware that I need to be able to pay for my own cost of living and I'm Mm. also aware that when I turn 18 any sort of well actually I mean in all honesty when I turned 14 my parents were like you can get a job so like there was never an allowance there was never like buying things so from a very early age I realized the importance of work and making some sort of income to pay for whatever it was that you know you wanted to do but knowing that once I turned 18 you were fully on your own I'm fully on my own so like how am I going to pay for rent how am I going to pay for my groceries college college you know I had to take out student loans for school um which are still you know still paying those off but (laughs) that's fine um but yeah so I knew I always identified as an artist and a question that I really kind of hate a lot that John I'm sure you get this question too like when did you know you were an artist and it's like really like isn't everybody an artist so I feel like the real question is when did you decide that you were like not going to abandon art you know like because I hate those artist statements that are like oh yeah I became an artist when I was age six well everybody was an artist when they (laughs) were age six so it's more like at age six I decided I wasn't going to abandon art anyway that was a little tangent so I I knew that I was an artist I knew I was always going to be an artist and always make paintings and always be creating things but I knew that like we don't live in a society that supports the arts. We don't have the same kind of government funding that other countries have, and we don't have the same kind of patronage um, that other kinds of countries have. So, so this idea of life as a struggling artist was something that was r- real for you as far as a potential. So you thought, well, I better have a safety net. Yeah, but I mean, struggling artist is is a... It's complicated because all of the artists, I mean, I'm really sort of exaggerating here, but a lot of the artists that I know today, they're not paying for their cost of living directly from sales Mm. of artwork. You know, they're still being supported by their mom or their dad, or they have a trust fund, or they've married somebody who is offered to support their cost of living. And it's... It's, I don't know very many artists today who are literally paying for their cost of living directly from... I mean, I know a few. <laughs> you're one of them, John. <laughs> but you're also a lot older than me. So, well, I, mean, I don't know. You're probably not a lot older than me. I am a little bit, yeah. I'll be 45 <laughs> this month, March 27th. You know, we're, yeah. we're, we're going to get into this a little later, but I think it's interesting, like, the metaphors of, like... Because you, you describe a period as sort of having a meltdown, right? In, mm-hmm. in your junior year in school. And I'm really interested in like what things look like as you're 
reaching that point where you go, this isn't working. You know, you talk a lot about plants and sort of how plants seem to, in your life, symbolize sort of the health or lack of health uh, it, it sort of that happens in your physical life, right? Um, can you describe that, that moment leading into a meltdown and, and sort of what you said at that point? Yeah, I guess it would probably be sort of connected to my parents and kind of what we were talking about earlier, where they're mm. doing this job nine to five that they do not like. They come home and they are almost void of life because they're just so discontent with their day job. And so I kind of saw choosing pharmacy as like, that might be how I end up. Like here I am Mm. working this nine to five job that isn't, you know, it's not, it's it's just not a good fit. It's not a good fit for me. And it's incredibly boring. And I thought I would like it because I do like chemistry. But when I was working as a, as a pharmacy intern, I realized it was much more about insurance sale or insurance uh, claims. And I was always on the phone and it just, it wasn't a good fit. And I, I didn't, I felt like I needed to be in an environment all day long where I was inspired. And while it, even if it didn't necessarily had to be a creative job, but I, I felt like I needed, and maybe I'm greedy, but I just needed to be inspired all day long. <laughs> I needed to be inspired all day long so that I could be creative on nights and weekends. Yeah, I think it's time for everybody to come up with a new definition of selfish because I, I think everybody should be selfish in some degree. You got to start with yourself first. And if you're happy, if you're pleased with who you are and what you're doing, you can better serve and be there for everybody around you. So why not make those selfish decisions at the start so you can, at, the, at your foundation, be at a good starting point? So you're not sitting in a grind all day. So I just knew it wasn't going to work. And it was, it was really scary to me because that was the model that was kind of presented hmm. by just observing how my parents lived was having a more soul-crushing job. I'm not saying, like, for those pharmacists who are out there, yeah. like, it's probably <laughs> it not soul-crushing for you. <laughs> but I just knew that I needed to, to be more fulfilled in my day job to be creative at night.
Okay, we're back. That was Clouds by Deep Time. It's John Duckworth, Alexopoulos, here in the Ohm Radio Studios with Karen Ann Myers. And we are going to talk about uh, what happened next when you decided to uh, skip a position as a graphic designer at Harvard Medical School and come to a city you didn't know before to take a position at uh, Redux Contemporary Art Center. Let's talk about that for a minute. That was probably the scariest thing that's ever happened to me yeah right <laughs> and both offers came in the same week yeah so after grad so you know now i'm living in boston and after grad school i'm just i'm waitressing at the same time and i'm working as a preparator at the boston university art gallery and trying to make paintings and looking for a single job rather than a hodgepodge of multiple jobs so I'm applying for graphic design positions and teaching positions and really anything that I can get my hands on that I think would be fulfilling. And at the, within the same week, I am offered a job to be the executive director of Redux, which clearly I chose because here I am in Charleston. That's right. Or um, to be a graphic designer at Harvard Medical School. And... It was a hard decision because here I am presented with a job within the city I'm living and wouldn't have to move. Uh, I had been dating Tony Chavez for two years at that point. So my boyfriend's boyfriend's there. there. My friends are there. And it was a higher paying salary. What pushed you to Charleston? Uh, I guess kind of going back to that first call, I I kind of thought about the day to day. So, okay, okay, you know, go to Harvard sit in a cubicle, design medical brochures. That doesn't actually sound like a lot of fun. Um, Nice pay. Perhaps it could support my night and weekend career as an artist. But when I really kind of sat down and went through pros and cons, I thought that it would be really boring and kind of soul-crushing. So I took the big leap. I was also 20, like two or 23 at this time. Okay. So it, it didn't seem, I'm not sure that I could have made that decision today, okay. uh, a decade later. But yeah, I you made. You were a bit more flexible in your, which direction you were going to go. Yeah. I, I talk a lot about like, um, at this point in my life, life feels really in alignment. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing A so that I can do B. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm doing something that is A and B, right? So when you're thinking about that Harvard medical cubicles, you know, you have that job so that you can do what you really want to do. Did that just seem like in conflict? Like why, why were you thinking about that or no? I'm not, it wasn't really in conflict um, because I mean, the reality of the situation is that's how the last decade of my life has really been. I'm still doing A to do B. I wanted to ask you about that, yeah. So, yeah. It still feels that way. Yeah, and I'm sure that it will kind of, I think it's going to feel that way for a long time. And yeah. and But I've accepted that as a, a path um, from a very early age. So it's not, it's more like, what am I, what is, what what is, is A yeah. to so do it's not B? Right, right. If there's got to be some passion there. There has to be something that you enjoy doing to make it worthwhile to support this other thing that you really want to be doing. But when you talk about the future and where you might want to go back to, it's back into teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, I, saw, I just thought that was an interesting route. Yeah, it's, you know, again, the, the plan A to support B 
there's another factor in that, which is time. So if you think of a, your time as a pie chart, um, working these uh, arts administrative jobs are very time consuming and yeah. fulfilling, like in a good way. Um, but when I moved here, the, the time chart was like 80% of my time was Redux, okay. 20% studio practice. And then moving to the Halsey, it maybe got a little bit better, maybe 70% Halsey, 30% of my time spent on my studio practice, still, mind you, putting a good 40 hours into the studio um, and just not sleeping. And so <laughs> there is no social life. There is no yeah. uh, personal time. Um, and so what's what has been changing is what that the time of plan a to support b mm -hmm. i'm i'm at about a 50 50 now so my okay. plan a endeavors take up 50 percent of my time and my studio practice takes up 50 percent of the time teaching uh uh the way that the academic world works um which I'm only going to explain a small facet of it, but painting professor, a, a position as a painting professor is really one of the, the most ideal jobs that an artist can have because you are teaching two or three courses a semester and there's the expectation that you're making work. That's so right. right now, up until, you know, right now, my, my whole life, my plan A to support B there is no expectation that I make art. You know, working at Redux, no expectation to be an artist. As uh, associate director at the Halsey, no expectation to be an artist. When you're a painting professor, there's a huge expectation that you're producing work and you're in a, a very conducive and supportive environment to do so. Mm. Through uh, grant opportunities, you're provided a studio space and just it's at that point there is really no plan a like teaching wouldn't be a plan a to support b right. they they, it's all in alignment right. they morph together yeah. and become one yeah. so yeah. that would you know that's that's kind of a, a goal of mine so that there is no plan A and plan B. It's just one thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that's a beautiful way of describing it because that, that incongruent sort of pattern and all of a sudden makes a lot yeah. of sense. And you can start to see the time shifting. You right. Know? 80, right. 20, 70, 30, 50, 50, and pretty soon it's just all, it's all one. Yeah, right. so my yeah. goal is to yeah. have your life, John. Right. Just you. all one. That, would you, you would say you're there now, right? Yeah, yeah, for quite a few, you know, for, for a little while now, maybe a decade now. Congratulations. Um, thank you. I want to switch gears a little yeah. bit. Um, <laughs> Do it. You, for our third call to adventure, um, I myself um, have... Uh, dealt with a lot of loss and death in my life from a very early age um, and so you described your, your third call to adventure which was the loss of your eight year partner Tony Chavez um, you said accepting the loss of my own identity which I had grown to admire after, after the death of my longtime partner which I had to read a lot, a lot of times uh, to sort of gain greater greater clarity as to what you were saying about that but can you do two things maybe one um the way he passed was um heavy mm -hmm. um and then maybe give us a little insight into sort of what what you're what you're commenting on there yeah so um april 2014 so almost three years ago um 
Tony, who was also an artist, um, professor at the College of Charleston, um, he decided he didn't want to live anymore. So he jumped from the Cooper River Bridge. And it was unexpected. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't really see it coming. So it was a huge shock, huge tragedy. It shook up my world, uh, obviously. Yeah. Like, you know, the loss of anybody. Um, but the sudden death of someone who's close is far more challenging than dealing with um, maybe a sick family member who you're sort of expecting that their time will end soon. So and this was literally, he snuck out of bed in the middle of the night in the bed you were in. Yeah, so I woke okay. up in the morning. Uh, he, you know, he made me coffee every morning and help. I'm not a morning person, so he would help oh, me right. get up and... I wake up and there's no coffee on the nightstand. So I think, okay, and this would happen occasionally because, you know, maybe we were out of coffee. So I thought, oh, he's at the Piggly Wiggly picking up coffee. Hop in the shower. He's still not home when I get out. And I think, well, maybe he's on a walk. So I'm about to leave for work to the to the Halsey and he's still not home. And at this point, I'm thinking there is something tremendously off because he was very much a person of routine. Hmm. And... I actually called the police and oh, wow. it was it was weird because at this point he's only been missing from my world for an hour and I, I kind of had a feeling the police weren't going to take me very seriously because you know maybe he's just on a walk. So I hired an investigator to look for him and you know he was he was missing for about 48 hours before his um body was discovered. Um, he had jumped onto Drum Island. Oh, wow. And so uh, I guess, thank God, he didn't jump into the water because it would have... Might not have been found. It might not have been found. So he hmm. jumped onto Drum Island, and there were uh, construction workers that I think were actually just going to take a leak <laughs> in the bushes on Drum Island and came across his body. So that was... A horrible, obviously a horrible, horrible experience yeah. that I have spent a lot of time dealing with and coming to accept. Um, but, um, like, I guess, like, Alex, like what you were saying, what's, you know, so that's almost been three years now. And it's not easy, uh, of course. I think about it daily. And it's it's come to be a part of my own identity um, in, in ways that I expected, uh, you know, I'll still run into somebody on the street and one of the first things they'll say to me is, that was so tragic, what happened to you? And I kind of oh, wow. think like, yeah, I know. And I know. it, it kind of sucks that, you know, that's how a lot of people, like they can't help but see me and sort of associate me with- That's the, the first the, association, <laughs> yeah. So, but what's been, what's been unexpected is- kind of my own death and each day that goes by the the things that I have lost of my own identity become more and more evident from that experience yeah it's yeah. almost like my brain was rewired and things uh. that came so easily to me um like have like organization in the mind or the way that I think about things or the the way that I the, that I move throughout the day, things that came so easily to me, multitasking or 
um, there's a number of examples. Those don't come easily. And for the first few months after his death, it was expected that your life would be turned upside down. That my life would be turned upside down. But I, I imagined that I would grow. That I would kind of slowly over time heal and carry on with my life in the same way that I used to. But I, I can't. Um, There's like permanent shift. There's like a permanent shift Hmm. in the way that I operate and the way that I move through the world that I am now finally kind of coming to terms with because I resisted it for a while and lots of tears and lots of crying and lots, you know, feeling very upset that like, I'm not the same person. Where's the old Karen? Yeah. Um, Where's the old Karen? And there's, there's also been other, hmm. it's, it's been, um, I've had, unfortunately I've had to deal with people in my life who expected me to kind of just quickly heal. And, um, they've expressed, their own disappointment in huh. me and uh, expected me to be the person that I used to be, um, which makes it even harder right. when there's others who are expecting you to be a certain way. So I have, I would say this year, finally, you know, like it's been like almost three years and I'm not like, I've, I'm not ever going to be the same person that I used to be. And so and you're my coming prior- to terms with that now though, as far as like, I mean, I guess that's one of the, you know what what everybody would talk about. You know, big things like that. You know, acceptance of certain truths, and and as far as accepting the fact that you're not going to be the same, Karen, you're coming around to that sort of notion. Yes, which shifts everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just think it's really interesting. The language, you know, that's words matter, right? And language matters, and just the language of the death of myself in that process, which I initially thought was. Uh, perplexing um, makes so much sense and when, I, I guess when did you come to use that language pretty recently yeah, yeah. Um, because again it's every day that goes by when something that used to be so easy for me to accomplish when it's not easy it's frustrating and after maybe a hundred times of doing something that should be easy, but it's not, you've, I mean, eventually you just have to accept it. Um, So it's, again, it's a lot of tears and a lot of feeling bad about myself and a lot of therapy Yeah. and eventually saying, you know what? I just have to accept that this is the new me and which in some ways is really empowering because if I accept that, okay, this is the new me, these are my new strengths and weaknesses, this is now what I'm capable of doing, um, now I can actually make progress and move forward rather than resisting the new me. Oh, okay. Right. Is that liberating? That was my, I don't know if that's the right word. Yeah, I mean, it's not like happily liberating. Right, right, but you're freeing yourself up from what, like the... From the weight of the struggle to get back? To get, yeah. to get back to somebody who you know you no longer are. So it's scary, though. So it's like, yeah. I don't really know who, like, hmm. the new me is. So it's like, you know, I've spent the first 31 years of my life learning about myself and making decisions um, based on who I am and what my priorities are. But now, 
some of my priorities are different and I have to abandon maybe huh. some of the goals that I had before because they don't really make sense anymore. I'd be curious about the, mm. just the physiology behind that. I mean, the, the, you know, we, we're now coming to understand that, you know, uh, the elasticity of the mind and the way neurons shift and change and you can actually literally physically change the way your brain is wired. Um, and, you know, trauma, and I suppose, could pull the rug out from under you and have your worldview shift to the point to where it literally physically changes your mind in ways that you didn't see coming and you're now having to figure out how to sort of wrap your head around that, that new truth. Exactly. It's really, really interesting. Um, and it doesn't surprise me that it would take three years. Which is also frustrating, uh, you know, because you just expect yourself to bounce back more yeah. quickly. And, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not where I want to be right now. And, I think, and I'm, so I think it's also, I've also kind of come to accept that this is going to take a lot longer yeah. than I wanted it to. Or yeah. that I think it should. I have imagined it's something that'll be with you for the rest of your yeah. life. And I mean, one of the major ways that it's changed me is what how I spend my time in the studio. So I've been working on this body of figurative work, which has been sort of what I'm known for. But over the last few years, it's hard for me to return to those paintings because uh, are they relevant? to my life anymore. This is um, the female figure on the bed. This is mm -hmm. the, the, the quintessential series that you're most known for at this point, right? Yeah. And, and it's creating a shift in that as well. So before I was exploring like female um, identity and female psychology, but now because of this event, it's it just doesn't seem relevant. So I, I've had a succulent garden for over a decade it it followed me from michigan to boston and boston to charleston always did really well it flourished i felt like i was connected to the plants in a weird way that when they were doing well i was doing well when they thrived i thrived if they bloomed a flower like something like i would get a grant or like crazy things like that so then <clears throat> we had that weird freeze a few years ago. And remember all the icicles were coming oh, yeah. off the Ravenel Bridge, which That's is right. kind of hilarious, <laughs> um, but not. Um, all my plants died because I wasn't used to having to bring them in. Um, and that when that happened, I was upset, obviously, and thought I remember saying to Tony, something terrible is going to happen. Um, and then that's a month later, he did kill himself. So uh, are the plants in my life connected? I think that they are. So I've been rebuilding my garden for the last three years in an obsessive sort of way and feel like maybe this is what I should be pursuing artistically. Mm. Um, I haven't wanted to be a person that just makes like pretty pictures of plants but I have had a lot of support from some of my friends who tell me, like, Karen, Lucian Freud, who's a very well-known figurative painter, he made plant paintings. Like, you can make plant paintings if Lucian Freud can make plant paintings. So that's kind of where, where I'm at is thinking about, like, how can the succulents maybe replace the importance that I had mm. uh, towards the figure? And the succulents have a fleshiness. There's a volume to them. 
Um, there's a seductiveness that's not terribly different from the figurative work that I've been doing. But at this mm -hmm. moment in time, I'm feeling a lot more connected to my plants and more attracted to them than I had been to maybe the female form and which had been propelling my work for, you know, many years. Yeah, and this new thing is something that is you're feeling really close with and a passion for. So, I mean, to me, that's I, I find that that's well, it's that's, rich, you know. It's I mean. rich, and that's that's like following the movement, you know, following the movement of your life. And and if that's where your passion and interest is in, then you know, why not? Why not go there? Yeah, but I'm terrified. Which about is great. It. I think I think it's <laughs> yeah. not a bad thing to be right. a little terrified about it. <laughs> what what terrifies you about it? Um, I don't know what they're going to look like. You know, I, I don't really, I, whereas once you've been working on a body of work for so long, you can imagine the end goal. Uh -huh. So I don't, I don't know what they're going to look like. Mm. Are they going to look good? Are they going to look bad? Like they're probably not going to look good for a while. Um, just like the figurative body of work, it probably took a few years to develop. Yeah. So, and it require you know, when you're, when you're trying to figure out a new body of work, it's exhausting. And do I have the energy to do that right now awesome. on top of everything? So I'm, I'm scared about that. Um, I'm scared about what people are going to think, ironically, because I usually don't <laughs> give a f <laughs> but but that's creeping back in a little bit yeah because yeah. you know there's just the expectation that this is what I've been this doing do. yeah. and yeah. and because I've been thinking about this for so long now like I, I had I've been thinking about making making paintings that included pieces of my garden even while Tony was alive so to me it's not so new but the world doesn't know that that's sure. what's been going on in my head um, so I guess I'm kind of back at this point where I'm afraid of failure and I'm learning about myself. And so I'm, it's almost like I've been reborn in a weird way, artistically and personally, and it's terrifying. Well, I would think that it would seem, uh, in, from my perspective, it would seem unusual if you just kept doing the same thing at that point. If this is what's happening to you personally is a complete upheaval then if you just kind of went back to what exactly what you were doing before, that to me would seem unusual. Mm -hmm. The fact that you would do something completely new seems fitting. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 to, to me, as an innocent bystander, it sounds really powerful and authentic and honest and, and truthful, you know? Um, to the world at large who only sees the work in an exhibit or on a piece that doesn't have that connection you know m maybe maybe it might seem like an, uh, a a very Tangent. different yeah uh, but um gosh the, the the story is powerful and um i i think it's uh you know th that's part of the call to adventure like making those moments that are just so uncertain and so much in this case darkness and sadness into something uh you know potentially beautiful so I wish you the best on that journey, and I hope to look at your succulents at some point on a canvas. Absolutely, yeah. And I think we're at the 
We're at the tail end of our time are here. We? As, uh, already? Uh, already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like we could talk for hours. Uh, we could, we could. Um, Have a whole day of adventures. That's right, that's I, right. I'd I like to just, I, I love this quote, so I just... Uh, I was going to say, I, we need I, to read that quote, because I, I think it might inspire the woman who gave it to us, I wanted Karen. To, <laughs> I wanted to end with a quote uh, from Aristotle, another, another favorite. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for sharing your time, Karen. It's been great. We're going to cut out with a tune called Waves from the band Blondfire. Enjoy. Oh
Okay, well, that was Waves by Blonde Fire. Second song choice by Karen Ann Myers. We're back here, John Duckworth, Alexopolis, and the Ohm Radio headquarters. And uh, what do you think, Alex? I mean, what a harrowing experience, really. The last yeah. conversation, you know, to have your partner of eight years get up in the middle of the night, leave your bed, and, uh, and go put an end to his life. I, she commented on it. I mean, she still can't. She still has a fear of going to bed at night uh, right. for that reason. Yeah. Has a difficult time sleeping. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, having gone through a lot of death and sort of listening to her talk about uh, her work with succulents and potentially a shift in her creative expression. Yeah. Gosh, I just hope she moves in that direction because it's just got, a, I mean, it's got. It's got power to it, I think. Yeah, well, it's authentic to her current experience, yeah. which, which I, I, um, I think that's generally where things translate. And, you know, even the people that... Uh, I'm sure the people who know her, for one thing, will, will appreciate it. The ones that don't, um, there'll be others, new people, who come right. in who will appreciate it for exactly what it is without having known anything about what she was doing previously. So there's a lot of richness and texture there. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, great to have her and, uh, um, look forward to seeing that work. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting journey there from, from Michigan to Boston to Charleston on sort of a, uh, I wouldn't say a whim, but the Charleston choice was, uh, not uh, turning down Harvard medical school, you know, but I mean, when she talks about that, I, it, it makes it sense, sense, right? right? I'm going to yeah. be in a cubicle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sort of putting together some medical books, you know? And it's, it's, it's really impressive. You know, I think it's. It's amazing that you know so often the public perception of, of of what an artist is, who an artist is, tends to be sort of disheveled, unorganized. You know, showing up late and and you know maybe drinking or partying too much, whatever it is. Um, but the sort of patient, methodical organization that she exhibits is really impressive. Yeah. And, and you know, when you think about you know just the conversation of her whittling down her time ratio. Yeah. From eighty twenty to seventy thirty to fifty fifty, and then eventually it'll all be equal. Yeah, um, and that's that's not an easy thing to do. You know, you really have to look forward to the future to to, to plan that sort of path out. Yeah, uh, but it made sense why she was yeah. moving in that direction, which Absolutely. was interesting to see as well. Yeah, yeah, really uh, cool. For anybody who's listening who would like to see what she's actually working on, you can go to KarenAnnMyers dot com. That's K A R E N A N N. M-Y-E-R-S dot com. Beautiful paintings. Um, look forward to seeing what she's working on next. Absolutely. As far as our show is concerned, um, you can always find uh, it on ohmradio963.org um, or search uh, SoundCloud, Call to Adventure, or iTunes Podcast, Call to Adventure as well. So thanks for tuning in for another hour of your time. Uh, look forward to next time. And uh, till then, cheers. All right, cheers. And remember, the road that is distinctly your own has never been traversed. Celebrate the path that is your call to adventure. This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management helping families strategize, execute, 
monitor and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com.